Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias. Hello, Scott. Hey, Keith, how are you? Uh, fine. Genevieve and Tasha remain mysteriously absent, but we think they'll be back. For... <laughs> is, is that the right for, for, the, for the Shirley Jackson biopic? <laughs> I guess still so. dealing with ghosts. Oh, uh, yeah, that's uh, maybe not. Uh, well, anyway, uh, they'll be back. Uh, we're pretty sure. We're also joined once again by special guest Allison Wilmore, film critic at Vulture. How are you, Allison? Uh, you know, I'm a pasty quarantine blob, but I'm here. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, great. We're happy to have you with us. So in our last episode, we discussed The Haunting, Robert Wise's 1963 adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. This week, we turn to Shirley, starring Elizabeth Moss as a fictionalized version of Jackson, a housebound woman with an acidic response for every human interaction she's forced to endure. Her husband, the literary critic Stanley Edgar Hyman, played by Michael Stuhlberg, doesn't share this attitude, inviting a young professor named Fred, played by Logan Lerman, and his pregnant wife Rose, played by Odessa Young, to share their home for a little bit, then more or less compelling them to stick around to serve as help and manage Shirley's behavior while he continues to cheat on her, openly and unapologetically. Jackson resists the arrangement until she sees an advantage to it, recruiting Rose to help research material for her latest novel, based on the recent disappearance of a young college co-ed. From there, things get a bit blurry. The relationships between each character shift in definition, some start to take on the traits of others, and Rose and Fred's stay starts to stretch into the indefinite future. Development director Josephine Decker stages with an ambiguity that matches the situation. As the film progresses, it starts to become unclear to us where the fantasy ends and reality begins, and how much Jackson's world will find its way into her fiction, and how much of her fiction will find its way into her world. suffering, my dear. There's not enough scotch in the world for that. <laughs> Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> well, you were invited to stay here for a few days until we can find a place. Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. I read your story. What are you doing in here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible do you know what it's like to have a secret so i'll just kick things off with what we always ask what did everyone think of shirley <laughs> i really liked shirley but not not as much as madeline's madeline which was josephine decker's last film which mm. really just like knocked me off my feet just you know was one of my favorite films of 2018 and just felt like this incredible incredibly electric film that did some similar things here in terms of like artist and muse and that relationship which can become kind of vampiric and this blurriness of process in which kind of reality is untrustworthy all of those things she definitely brings to Shirley but it's in a somewhat more conventional container I guess I would say and I think it was a little less exciting as a movie to me while still having a lot of things that I enjoyed I kind of have kind of the opposite reaction because I'd never seen a Josephine Decker film, so I decided to finally check out uh, Madeline's Madeline and then Shirley, and I and I had the opposite reaction, which is like I was really grateful for the conventionality of Shirley, the relative conventionality of Shirley, because her style is really hard for me to. It's a tough style for me to kind of embrace. It's uncut in Madeline's Madeline in a way that it is not here, even though this is certainly not by any means a conventional biopic. It's only kind of conventional by her standards, it would seem. But overall, I think I like Shirley quite a bit. It's another great Elizabeth Moss performance. And it's it's one where Decker's style, I think, does serve uh, the material well and r serves this kind of mind meld again that sort of happens in the other film too of just the sort of transformation that's taking place within these characters and then kind of coming to each other at least in the way that rose sort of becomes uh surely at a certain point um it's not i mean it's not the most 
subtle thing in the world uh, when it happens. But uh, but I appreciate that. And I appreciate like kind of the academic environment of it. It's reminiscent. Uh, it, it, Keith has put it here in the notes, but there's a lot of the film uh, that reminded me who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in terms of uh, fraught relationships among intellectual types. All of that seemed pretty real to me. So you know, overall, it, it is a film I did uh, I did like with some reservations. Uh, yeah. What about you, Keith? What'd you yeah, think? Yeah, I liked it too. Um, and, and actually, I haven't, I haven't seen Madeline's Madeline yet. And I, I've been meaning to for a couple of years now, currently, but uh, um, I'll get to it. So I don't have a point of comparison there, but I thought it, was, it started very strongly and then I become kind of dissolute toward the end. But I actually thought the very end of the movie really kind of drew things together in, in a tight knot that I really appreciate it, which is a bit of a spoiler. How I guess it's not a Spoiler or not spoiler, but, but things are, you know, it, it further complicates these very complicated relationships when, when you, you know, the final scene between Shirley and, and Stanley. But I mean, you know, I felt like there's a lot at work here. I, I thought, uh, the performances are great. I mean, to say Elizabeth Moss is good in a movie is not exactly a, a shocking thing, but I, I thought she kind of captured this sort of weird mix of, aggressive misanthropy and helplessness that seems true to the character from what I understand of, of Shirley, uh, Shirley Jackson herself. And then I knew very little about Stanley Edgar Hyman. And I thought Stuhlberg was great as this sort of this charming, sleazy, deeply eccentric uh, professor who kind of captures that academic thing where it's like, if you have a certain amount of respect and, and tenure, you can kind of get away with stuff that <laughs> you really shouldn't uh, otherwise, you know? So, and that, yeah. and that is campus business, too. I mean, that is the way he handles Logan Lerman's character as, both, mm. as, as a mentor and a rival, and just the bitterness at the core of that, particularly with regard to a, a certain professional thread i guess i thought that was dead on i mean because i think that type of relationship you know is exists in academia (laughs) everywhere yeah and i think you know you also have them as these kind of like cocks of the walk uh, on campus right like the main relationship between shirley and stanley is one that is like kind of an unwillingly open relationship on her part Mm -hmm. Uh, they have an arrangement that's mentioned that clearly is not one that she seems to be thrilled about but (laughs) then that also there's some of that that bleeds through uh, into stanley's uh mentee as well i mean the film is set in this kind of ambiguous period, it, it plays a little loose with uh, Shirley Jackson's timeline. Uh, but I would say probably like it, between the two works, it's between The Lottery, which was published, I believe, in 1948 or 49, and then Hangs a Man, which is published in the early 50s. So it's like right in that period. And there are certainly like it's very based on uh, that period's gender dynamics and expectations. Yeah, but also a little advanced, too. Right. I mean, like the idea of any kind of an open relationship. I mean, that seems like a Northeast liberal arts college idea that wouldn't become mainstream until later right (laughs) the idea of a very modern marriage it's an open relationship in that she knows he's cheating and he's told her he's going to do it (laughs) yeah that's true that's true that's true it doesn't it does not cut both ways yeah and uh yeah there are no and there are no you know key parties or whatever in this movie but one thing that i did appreciate about it too is that it resolved a lot of I always go into biopics with a certain amount of skepticism and it it does the thing that I like biopics to do, which is like really focus on one set period of time rather than trying to do too much. I mean, you know, and the fact that that the novel that she's working on is kind of not the novel you want to expect a film about her to cover. You Mm -hmm. think, oh, let's see what happened during when she wrote The Lottery. Like, what kind of, what was she experienced at that point? Or The Haunting of Hill House. House, Right. Yeah, this is Hangs a Man. But it's pertinent. And of course, the story uh, uh, that she's working on that she's developing for the novel bleeds, you know, the relationship that she's having with this new young woman in her life is feeding into it at all. It's well done. I mean, that it's a good choice. And I guess it's based on the, I didn't realize until Keith mentioned it, that it was based on a novel. I, I did not, I did. So I assume the novel kind of covers that terrain as well. Yeah. I, I guess one thing that worked against me a little bit is, was my own expectations where I thought that there would be a little more plot driven by this, this investigation to the missing woman. So you know, when that didn't really quite go where I thought it was, I guess I was a little, a little, um, 
thrown off. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean it's good. It's, I think I think it's definitely worth seeking out, and I, I will check out Madeline's Madeline too. Finally, at some point, I kept thinking, like as as you mentioned before, I kept thinking of other films we could have paired this with. It might have uh, been might have been even better than The Haunting, like Naked Lunch and Kafka. But also, <laughs> there's some really strong, I think, references to Persona in this film. Yeah, as we well, were we too. were kind of we were sort of flying blind on this one a, l- a little bit. We just like oh Shirley Jackson, let's do The Haunting, um, yeah. which is fine. There are connections there. We'll, we'll get into later. I think there's only really a couple moments that remind me of the haunting in this film. We'll get into the connections too, but there's just, um, but stylistically, it's it's quite different as well. I do think that there is something, and you know, we can discuss this later. But I think there is something there as well that is a theme that's in the haunting that becomes much more explicit here, which is this idea of someone who is treated as a hysteric, and mm-hmm. the degree to which you are hysteric because of your own mental health issues versus you're hysteric because of the just deep unfairness of the gender roles and expectations that are placed on you, you know? And I think that that becomes like, that's really brought to the forefront here in terms of this idea in both of these, the, you know, the, both of the female leads of, of the idea of being the good campus wife, the good faculty spouse, how you're supposed to behave. And then, you know, Shirley is in this movie like almost like the beast in Beauty and the Beast, right? <laughs> like like ensconced, <laughs> ensconced in her remote house, far from campus. Yeah, there was one thing thing Keith mentioned in terms of just the resolution of the actual character that's in the book. I mean, I think that you do get to that point, that kind of critical moment in the movie where she, where I think Stanley is criticizing her for doing the book and why she's doing the book. And uh, and who's who is this person? Who, why do we you know? And and it's like and then this we realize that this character is kind of an avatar mm-hmm. for a lot of different women that are on this campus and in general. And so I don't think we necessarily need the particulars of this case to resolve itself. I think it's more about evoking this particular type of character and then just that this idea of erasure. I guess I think that's probably a good word for what ends up happening to a person like that. And then, of course, we see it dramatized entirely in the character of Rose. Yeah, it's really her story as much as anything else in, in that she begins this film as this very sort of on an even footing with her husband, this sort of, you know, romantically and sexually satisfying relationship. And all it kind of gets leached away the longer they stay in, in the, the Jackson Hyman house. <laughs> Yeah, but they were never on equal footing, right? The more Mm -hmm. we understand about the context Mm -hmm. in which they got married, the more you understand that she has been put in this precarious position and that she, a lot of this movie, I think, is like about that fear of being kind of like rendered secondary and invisible and domestic by your position as a wife, as a mother. You know, one thing that that the film does is actually like uh, Shirley Jackson and Stanley, they had four children. They do not have children in, in this. They are just the two of them in this house. It just erases that portion of their life. And I think it kind of channels a lot of that anxiety into the Rose character. Instead, she becomes, at certain points, a kind of maybe surrogate for a younger Shirley in the different ways she reflects different characters throughout. What's really central in the movie is the relationship between the two women. And you do have plenty of dinner table scenes where Shirley and and Stanley say something to offend (laughs) their, their guests. But with Shirley, she recognizes Rose's situation instantly and identifies it openly which is you know offensive and difficult of just basically saying it's a shotgun marriage that they're in you know and then uh, i think rose starts to accept the intent of that or starts to accept surely as being a, a, a kind of ally or somebody or a truth teller and somebody who recognizes her situation in a way that maybe she doesn't even acknowledge and certainly her husband doesn't acknowledge that it's a big part of what sort of deepens their relationship which is itself quite complicated because there are elements of exploitation to that relationship too where rose is being taken advantage of and where rose is driven not to a good place mentally (laughs) not a particularly healthy relationship but it is um it's a kind of a deep one yeah i think also you know to the point we were talking about earlier with regard to the missing girl who becomes inspiration for the book there is this moment in the film where Shirley kind of like Rose thinks that there's a particular reason that Shirley is interested in this character, right? She thinks that maybe this girl was one of Stanley's many flings. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of moment in which, you know, Shirley rebukes that. And it's not even just the, her being like, you don't understand me, but it's also being like that 
you know, that's not what interests me about this material and this character. Ultimately, it's not about my husband. I'm actually interested in this girl that I found really uh, like fascinating and kind of complicated point in the relationship between these two characters. Yeah, I think another thing that, that happens in the film as it progresses is it becomes less clear what's really happening and what's not. I mean, there's a scene in the bathtub that I, I cannot, for the life of me, if you, I could not tell you if it was actually in the reality of the film or a fantasy for it. I think it becomes, by design, I think it becomes unclear. Does that work for you? Do you feel like that serves the story it's trying to tell? Um, for me, I get a little frustrated with how I think there's some, like, as it gets towards the end, I feel like I'm not, I don't mind the kind of like kaleidoscopic quality it acquires towards the end, but mm. I do feel like there are moments where I felt uncertain about the intent. Not, I didn't ex- necessarily expect a single kind of read or answer, but I, I felt, and I mean, that's one of the things with Josephine Decker is, you know, she's made two earlier films that were, felt a lot more opaque to me that I was very frustrated with. Uh, uh-huh. and I, and I, you know, uh, butter on the latch and thou wast mild and lovely. Um, neither of which I particularly care for. And so I really love Madeline's Madeline because it did feel, at least in spirit coherent, even as it like kind of broke and went into wild places. And there are moments in this where that looseness, that tendency to kind of like let reality spiral out, but also let that kind of, I think, intent become a lot less clear that get a little frustrating for me in Shirley. Yeah, there's kind of a thing with with Decker, it seems, again, based on my limited experience of, of two films, but like she's always kind of almost just burrowing into the heads of these characters and her films are both kind of about a sort of myopia and then also themselves myopic <laughs> and can be hard to read and it can almost have this experiential quality to them, which again is a part of the feel of the films. And I think I think you feel your way through a film like this and a film like Madeline's Madeline, but it is hard on a basic narrative level to track some of the behavior and how things kind of evolve i think you have a vague sense here of these two characters uh shirley and rose merging rose more toward shirley than the other way around but how you get there and how you get out of there and how it impacts the other relationships in the film can be a little bit harder to parse yeah and i also feel like and i mean this is not as a criticism of the film but just as a comment on it i feel like the male characters are not complicated in any way they're all right there on the surface there, there's nothing for all his like you know rep- reputation as a great intellect and, and scholar nothing that stanley does surprises me at all uh, you know fred becomes just another dude <laughs> taking advantage of the system you know yeah. um, uh, without even Stanley's little eccentric charm to him but the women are endlessly complicated there's, there's just endless jungle life depths to their psyche, to their psyche that this film uh, plunges into in some really interesting ways and and I, I think you know there's a little like like I said the dissolute quality of the second half of this movie keeps me at a little bit from arm's length from it but uh, but I do you know I think it's, it's definitely an accomplishment worth seeking out yeah you know what I would say though I think Stanley's got some layers. Um, I, you know that that's an interesting performance to me. I mean, I think it's oh, it's one a really the, good performance, uh, really I great don't... performance. And, and, but I think there is kind of a thing where it's like his behavior, where which at times is is so gregarious and kind of uh, um, and ingratiating and kind of like he's in charming in so, certain moments, and then in other moments is is full of bitterness and rancor. And you know, the moments when when he f- flips the, that switch on and off felt right to me and and interesting, and and then. And then his relationship with Shirley, I think, has got a lot of depth to it as well. I mean, I also think I, I really wish the film, there's a line towards the end of the film where he reads the book and the line is something like, he, he liked it, but he has a couple of edits. Or I have some notes. And she kind of, says, of I have course. Some notes. I just, I wish yeah. the film would have ended right there. Like that was like the perfect <laughs> last line. This is like a perfect sort of definitive moment you know and it reminded me because we talked about who's afraid of virginia wolf i mean the dynamics are so similar right i mean that they're the burton and elizabeth taylor characters you know who have invited the young this young couple to their home right i mean those films have so much in common and ultimately the older couple know each other better you know and can sustain this long dark night of the soul in a way that the younger couple (laughs) cannot and that's true of both films yeah. One of the things that was a pleasant surprise for me in the film was 
while I wouldn't describe that their central marriage is by any means <laughs> an enviable one, yeah. um, that, that I think it doesn't allow it to be simply oppressive or simply unhealthy, you know, like for all that they're, they hurt each other constantly. And for all that he works to kind of keep her alienated from his colleagues and for all that she then kind of will deliberately act out in social occasions, you know, um, to keep him on his toes. He is still like a genuine fan of her work, right? Like yeah. that is maybe the key, the core of their relationship is for all of its disastrousness that he, he genuinely respects and like loves her work and she genuinely wants his approval of it. And I think there is something there that you understand that like kind of holds them together. Yeah. And that's kind of like, I, I, I get what you're saying with that it would be a remarkable final line, but I think the final scene where domestic order is kind of been restored and there's a sense that uh, this is how the relationship works and there's sort of an, all this has happened before and all this will happen again, a uh, feeling to the final moments of the movie. Uh, that, to me, that kind of snapped things back into place for me uh, where I was, you know, where I was feeling a little I'm adrift. I can tell her business. Before. She can do it. <laughs> I can tell a director what to cut, but I'm yeah. just saying that was a good line. Might've might worked for, might've worked okay for me, but one more thing about Stanley, I found especially infuriating about how he's condescending even toward the things he's supposed to be passionate about. Like the lecture he gives where he's playing the lead belly song. And it's sort of like, creating titters among these this all-white audience that he does nothing to dis- to discourage he kind of makes fun of of lead belly's name you know and and but like this is you're supposed to be here to champion this stuff or at least treat it with intellectual rigor it, it, it was a it was a small moment but i thought a very telling one that, that and a maddening one in this movie like fancy private college uh academic distance you know you can be you can be eccentric but eccentric in like the way that he is right like that's Mm -hmm. that's how much you're allowed to kind of diverge from uh what's considered respectable and then things that are kind of coming from outside he is the one he's the conduit who brings it in front of this you know sheltered audience and he can they're gonna titter um he's the one who gives it his stamp of approval just like one more thing i wanted to say about Stanley is that I think that his relationship to Shirley is accounted for in his assessment of Fred, the Logan Lerman's character's dissertation about just like how he can't deal with mediocrity, you know, like whatever Shirley is to him, you know, whatever the highs and lows of being with her. I mean, he talks about having read this piece of hers and this is, you know, seeking her out because of it. So he's a fan, but there's also a lot of, you know, there's a high, there are highs and lows and the, the, the middle part is something that frustrates him and, and uh, makes it feel, you know, that a person like, like Fred is just not worth his regard at all. Uh, and certainly not worth tenure. <laughs> Right. So. Well, he's right. He's just a regular. What he says something like he's aggressively competent or something yeah. like that, yeah. and that that stands in contrast to what Shirley says or what interests her is this type of girl who's the type of girl who's everywhere on campus. Right? She's a normal girl and she's not even seen at all. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like that. That yeah, that interesting kind of uh, divide between them. In the scene where he accuses him of being a lightning thief, oh, that was really strange. <laughs> because <laughs> he's percy jackson um, all right well we will be talking more about shirley momentarily as we bring in the haunting to make some connections because that's what we do on the show we'll be right back after the break my boy shed a layer. We aren't formal in this house. Often thought about participating in the Native American ritual of the sweat lodge. Thank you. Often. Why yes, dear. But then I learned you have to crawl through a dirt tunnel under the ground and sit naked buttocks to naked buttocks with a dozen (laughs) other men while some shaman stokes a smoky fire maintaining the 100 degree heat and peddles some noxious root tea that inspires hallucinations. <laughs> now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. But first, I've been informed during this break that Percy Jackson is not actually the lightning thief 
Some other character is a lightning thief, and my ignorance of this important YA series has been exposed for all the world to see. I am sorry. Uh, so let's talk about the things these films have in common. Most obviously, let's just talk about the madness of, of both of them. I mean, the, you know, the haunting has uh, a very uh, fragile uh, character who teeters over the edge, and eventually, so does Shirley. So that's that's a starting point, right? What, what is, is that a strong connection between these two? Yeah, the strongest, I would say so. Right? Yeah, <laughs> well, so. yeah, but I think it's also like you know, like I said before, I think there's you can't talk about their kind of psychological fragility without also talking about the fact that it's like tied into the kind of roles and expectations assigned to them. You know that like for Shirley, especially, she clearly at a certain point has like a lack of interest in playing the right role. Right? She prefers to be this disruptive presence sitting on the couch at the faculty party and then spilling the wine all over it, uh, mm. and then getting into a fight with the dean's wife. But like, I think there's a certain point in which you're like actually fitting in and playing that role is its own kind of madness right like the very last time we see rose when she's being told like oh you just need to kind of rest and things will go back to normal and she's like going back to being like the wifey like (laughs) yeah that that was madness you know and you're like you're right you're totally right like there's a lot about what you're expected to kind of put up with and do and keep quiet about that doesn't actually seem that sane. There's also a bit of a Theodore to her characterization here, too, where she, just by her willingness to be cutting in social situations, but also the fact that she knows that Rose is pregnant, there's just a, there's a kind of an echo of that character as well. Right. She's a witch, right? Sure. She says She says it herself, and she definitely has like a very almost magical way of just like cutting people to the quick when she she wants to. Yeah, I kind of wish they would have gone a little deeper into that because I found that element really interesting. Maybe, maybe I should read this. I should read that biography that came out a few years ago about Shirley Jackson. It seems like a pretty fascinating life. Have you read it, Allison? I haven't. It was one that, uh, again, it has been on my, like, like you has been one that I've been meaning to read. And mm. this has certainly made me more interested in reading it. I just, she seems like such a kind of interestingly fraught person Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of of the life she she lived and in terms of kind of what she struggled with uh you know in terms of the domestic life professionally and then just like physically as well with her health yeah it's interesting that one of the last the books she was working on when she died quite young in her in her 40s was a book about a woman who Packs it all. It's supposed to be a lightly comic novel about a woman who kind of packs it all in and starts over, starts a new, leaves her husband and starts a new life, which I thought was uh, curious. I would love to, love to have seen that play out. Uh, so we should talk about the style of the film. There's, there's, as I mentioned before, there's really a couple of moments that reminded me of the haunting, and there's a kind of a close up of a of a wall where the sound design kind of takes over. That was that felt like a conscious homage to the haunting in in Shirley. But other than that, there's there's just not a not a whole lot here. But well, it's it's kind of a haunted house movie as well, though, isn't it? Well, the the reason why I had put style here is because I think in both films there's not necessarily a connection other than the fact that both films are are pushing things to extremes mm. in terms of style we talked a bit in the first episode about the haunting and about the use of space and light and in black and white and the way it kind of enforces claustrophobia he, he used he was using lenses or whatever that hadn't really been approved of yet or were fully developed and so there's there's some distortion effects that he was comfortable uh, putting in the movie uh, that, that that work quite well and it, and it does have again to, to, to go to my absolute favorite noel murray quote it has has more dutch tilts mm. than a poorly hung vermeer exhibit <laughs> i mean come on I, I i actually that was one of those things where it's like all right i'm gonna stop writing now because noel wins this <laughs> but i think that you have with shirley an also unconventional and aggressive style that i certainly saw in madeline's madeline and presumably her other films i mean we're just she's just in love with the telephoto lens Uh, there's a there's a lot of like there's no deep focus at all um you're right up and you know if she could like burrow a hole in her character's heads and get the camera in there she would 
and so you have you're you're forced into these this perspective that's very different, of course, from the hunting. The hunting, you, you're getting a lot of wide shots, and you're getting all of these every single character and sharp focus in the frame, and that's just not the way. Here, it's like let's just show you this whole scene from like the side of Michael Stuhlberg's face, mm. uh, you know. So, so so again, you know, both kind of um, work to similar ends, but they're not the, obviously they're not the same. Yeah, she really, she has, like, that much looser, like, almost, like, disorienting camera work, right? Um, But I do think it does create a similar effect of feeling, like, you feel very unmoored. Like, your own point of view is even, like, uh, one that you have to constantly kind of reassess. And I think there's something in that that, even though they, I think the style is very different, like, uh, in spirit, I feel like they match up in some ways. There is, in both of these films, to use a unavoidable cliche in talking about The Haunting, but also about this one as well, the, the, the house kind of becomes a character uh, in, in both of these films. And I think that is another direct echo that may not be intentional, may just be because they're drawing from the same source of, of Shirley Jackson. But this, this is a sort of cramped, cluttered, but very you know rich in character New England house that, that Shirley Jackson lives in, that is just a couple of degrees away from feeling like a haunted house. Yeah, when you see it outside, covered in plants, it mm. definitely looks a little forbidding. It gets a little bit... There are ways that when, when they, you see it from the outside that it's meant to look, I think, a little spooky, a little... You know, it does feel like the fairy tale, the straight, like, kind of dark fairy tale castle that, uh, you know, these this young ingenue is approaching. But I think there's also, like, in a kind of very basic sense, you know, The Haunting is a movie about Eleanor who comes to this house and then refuses to leave. She doesn't want to leave, and and Shirley Jackson is like kind of an agoraphobe in this movie, right? She also doesn't want to leave the house. She hasn't left the house for a long time. You hear multiple times and other characters are like, especially her husband are like, you know, like you haven't left the house for like two months or something like that. <laughs> they are both uh, just rattling around in these places that are their chosen homes. Kind of like us these days in a way, yes. right? <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> on lockdown. It's so funny. Like there's every film I've watched since, since uh, being under quarantine has been, God, this whole feels, this film gets it. This film totally gets what it's like to be inside all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, like, it's like, oh man, The Shining. Good Lord. How did like, how did I not see that this whole, that Kubrick saw this whole quarantine Thing coming and how how, <laughs> how things how crazy we'd all go, um, uh, yeah. So uh, it, it has that it, you know, and of course, the notion of like venturing outside of of these spaces too is is scary in its own way. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I guess maybe it's more appealing to everyone but the lead and and in the haunting. But for our lead characters, um, that you know, that's the space that they are ulti- ultimately want to uh, occupy, and in, in leaving it is uh, becomes extraordinarily fraught. I mean, to the point where Nell, you know, crashes her car, and that's the end. Of the- <laughs> It's the end of the movie, but I mean, just getting getting uh, you know when when Shirley resolves to go to a party, that's a pretty decent stretch of the film. Getting her in shape to even get to that do to another place, and uh, and it's something that owes to her melding of sorts with Rose, and and Rose it does have a restorative effect on Shirley. You know, it's not all Shirley's gravitational force that's drawing Rose to her. It's it's the the, the opposite happens as well. I think another connection that kind of comes through after after watching these movies back to back is to the degree to which you can t- treat Shirley as as a representation of the actual Shirley Jackson. It, it does feel like she kind of divided herself in two for the characters of, of Nell and Theodora. There's sort of the trembling, nervous uh, Nell and, and the, the cutting Theodora. And the, the Shirley of this film kind of has both those personas in her in, in a really uh, interesting, interesting way. I, I think, you know, much credit to Moss for, for making that feel like a coherent character, which, which she does quite, a, you know, quite well. Yeah, and you also, you can sense, you know, when she does kind of turn on the, like, ability to to just be very kind of cutting, uh, that it's something that both she and Stanley enjoy, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's part of their the performance of their marriage is, like, when she decides to slice someone to bits at the dinner table um, and, like, leave them fleeing the dinner table. But yeah, she does seem to to represent both of those characters, which is something that, you know, I, I went back and rewatched The Haunting after Shirley, and it just seemed like very clear, like these were two aspects of her psyche. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the the way Shirley Jackson's character and Shirley toggles between extreme vulnerability and almost incapacitation to someone who can have the confidence to be as leveling as, as she is is so interesting. And she can kind of be both at once. I mean, you know, once she actually does make it to the party... It's a hugely uncomfortable experience for her her to to be there, and she acts out of course by pouring wine on the on the couch. But you know that's also a deliberate move, and she she's it's an aggressive play, and she she uses that moment to say what she needs to say to this. Uh, is it the dean's wife who's the who's the who's the it's character? It's the yes. dean's wife, yeah. Who it's implied is one of the women that stanley's been having an affair right yeah just but also that like you know there's a part earlier when you see her when she says like um i get all of my information from stanley when she's talking to rose and just talking about all of the bad things she's heard about shirley where you also kind of understand that stanley as like a representative for shirley out on campus is maybe not representing her all that kindly (laughs) right (laughs) no 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 it's a it's a, such an interesting marriage. I mean, and yeah, the God, the it, it, all of the those those Virginia Woolf vibes are really coming through. The, the dynamics are so similar in in, in this film, and that and even the way it kind of resolves itself is um, at the end feels very Virginia Woolf. But uh, but I think that observation is is right, Keith, about Nell and Theodore being aspects of that personality, and it does when you do watch the films back to back. There's a kind of a psychological feel to both movies and uh in these characters that echo quite strongly that feels cohesive even even if the movies themselves you know, are quite different the another echo is, is theodore is is very thinly veiled as as a lesbian um and then certainly as rose and shirley's d- relationship develops throughout the film uh and again this is a part where it's not clear how much is fantasy and how much is reality but but sexuality enters into their relationship as well we don't really bring up Theodore's sexuality in the in the first half, but it seems like a good place to talk about that uh, as it plays out in, in both these films. Yeah, I've seen some reads of The Haunting that, that assume that Eleanor is meant to be repressed herself, you know, and that she kind of, uh, the relationship between her and Theodora is one of like a kind of, you know, sexual tension at least or something, and then also then a deliberate kind of, hostility and avoidance on Eleanor's part because uh, she doesn't want to deal with that. Uh, it's funny because in the, then in the, the 1999, The Haunting, it's like her staring at Catherine Zeta-Jones in the mirror. She's like undressing mm. any subtlety there out the window. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought, you know, the, the when there is that element in Shirley, it's brought up and then it kind of goes away. You know, there's like a brief window in which it's there and it's very like heady and then it's gone, which I think is one of those elements that makes you wonder how much it's actually happening or how much it is like in one of the characters heads. There's some business under the table, right? Uh, you know, some business on the with the involving the uh, porch swing, I think. Yeah, just enough to give you like a little bit. And I mean, I'm not sure if uh, if it makes sense. I, I guess it makes sense that it gives you as much as it does, um, and then leaves it leaves it at that. I mean, I guess that's something that both films do. They're not they're not going to. I mean, really, I mean, the haunting really doesn't. <laughs> you really have to read into it pretty closely. But um, you know, surely it's a, a little more present. It's just not followed through on um, that thoroughly. No, it's another point where the film, I feel, is, is kind of um, becomes, you know, hazy in a way that was more frustrating than evocative. But, um, you know, it, it is kind of, it is another thing thrown into the mix to make things more complicated. A very complicated film already more complicated. It also is, they're both set in eras in which uh, this could not be out in the open or spoken of or, or you know, certainly not accepted in a way, which I, I think we should, it's, I think we should talk about how each of these films reflects the moments, either they're set or in which they were made. Uh, it feels like just uh, the, the coding around Theodora and the haunting is, is so, so thin. And then they cut one scene where apparently she leaves what is obviously her lover uh, writing behind a note or on a mirror or something that says, I hate you. Uh, so she's in, you know, she's recently broken up um, as well, but it's a little more clear who she's broken up with to the degree, which is, is, I mean, I think it's an element of, of daring to it as well. I'm not sure how much of that was commented upon at the time and, and maybe not even sure how, how, 
you know, as thin as, like I said, the coating is, I'm not sure audiences weren't accustomed to looking for that sort of thing. So they might not have even seen it um, as well. Do have you, do you know anything about how it was received? I don't know, though. I do feel like in the context of the time, that's like actually a pretty obvious character, mm-hmm. you know, like the edge to it, like Claire Bloom gives to like sisters, right? She says it twice, I think right. uh, that that is like very, I think like meant to be pretty clearly read, but also, you know, the scene where Eleanor, she calls Eleanor like innocent or naive or something. And Eleanor says like, I'm not that naive. Like I know I'm not mm. like you, one of nature's mistakes. Uh, you yeah. know, I think that that's not really like, uh, it's not meant to be that subtle. <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard her to kind of rejection. Way. Yeah. You know, I think which like makes it uh, stand out for its era. Certainly. I mean, how much do you feel like Shirley is attempting to comment on the times? Like, you know, obviously they're the repressive housewife role is was a little more standard than than now. But I, I don't know how interested it is in, in making it a commentary about uh, the social elements of the 1950s and early 1960s um, and how much it's trying to tell a sort of timeless story or that even that, that, that the film is even concerned about either either one. Did, did, you know, what was your read on that? I think it's actually pretty significant in mm. Shirley that, you know, because, because you're talking about what, what's, what is a woman's role as an intellect, as an academic, as a, as a wife, as wifey, you know, and, and, and the, the expectation that right away that, that Rose is supposed to just abandon everything to hold this house together to make meals, um, to tidy up. Sure. I mean, that's very old fashioned and it contrasts with, you know, the libertine things that, you know, somebody, somebody like Stanley or even Shirley are trying to do. I mean, they're trying to be modern in a way that played against that era. And it's kind of like you, you almost have a situation where they, they're sort of having it both ways that, that you can have. There's like kind of a hypocrisy, I guess, that's, that's, that's there where it's like you can, you know, this person can be shuttled into this old way of doing things and this extremely old fashioned way of doing things. But we are, uh, we, we modern folks are, can have an, you know, if you're Stanley, you can have an open marriage and you can kind of, you know, have this sort of, sort of advanced for the time, modern view of relationships and open relationships and sexuality and that kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's fitting to your, you know, radical vision of, of the way life should be lived. So both of those things kind of coexist uncomfortably, in Shirley, and it, I think it's a pretty big part of the movie. It is kind of a, a precursor to the to the sort of the hippie the hippie mentality of uh, things are going to be liberated and women won't still know their place. You know, it, it is uh, kind of that uh, ahead of its time in a way. Yeah, I you know I I, well, I agree. I think it's pretty central to the movie, and I think also in the Stanley Shirley marriage, you see him kind of yeah like taking advantage of having it both ways. He is this very kind of outrageous character on ca- on campus, right? Uh, even in the parties they throw, you can tell they're meant to be kind of libertine, loose parties. Um, but at the same time, he's happy to take advantage of what's allowed him as the man in the family. You know, like, I, I think what's so interesting about their marriage is that she becomes, you know, more successful than him. She becomes also the breadwinner. And I think that... There is a bit of that tension, even if she's not quite full into her career the way she will be, that, that, that you get a sense of that tension and the ways in which it informs some of their dynamic. He understands that she might be the genius of the two of them. Yeah. And sometimes he appreciates that and admires it. And sometimes he needs to kind of like take it out on her a little as well because he can because there are a lot of ways in which he still can like have a bit more social power yeah so i I definitely think that that feeds into the complexity of their marriage a lot i'd I'd love to see shirley too uh, where it gets gets into the later part of their marriage I think that'd be pretty pretty good. Well, it goes unaddressed in the film. Um, it's out the, outside its scope, but of course, Shirley Jackson is now far more famous than Stanley Hyman, though you know he has his role in the intellectual history of of, uh, of the 20th century. Um, Shirley Jackson, I think, feels I feel like she gets more famous as time goes by, I, I, as people discover or rediscover more of her work. Yeah, I mean, she, once you're referenced in The Simpsons, you know, you, right. you're uh, 
Yeah, you're fine. Right. Oh, once Harold Bloom comes down on your work and declares you not part of the canon, oh, you know you've no, made you know it. That. It was something like that. Yeah, he, he wrote about her. Yeah, so I think that that actually is a sign that you have made it. Well, if Harold Bloom, <laughs> if Harold Bloom said that we should probably erase these episodes as it's no longer uh, relevant. These episodes can exist. They're just not canon. Right, okay, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're apocrypha. Uh, well, we hope... We are eventually canonized by somebody, uh, other than Harold Bloom, since he's no longer with us. In the meantime, The Haunting is on the usual VOD services and on DVD and Blu-ray. I'd recommend those versions because there are some really cool extras on it, including a commentary with, I think, everyone in the cast except for Russ Tamlin, who's, I think, the only one of the cast, the main <laughs> cast and, and uh, crew still alive. Uh, no, no, he's in it. No, he's in it as well. I'm sorry. He's okay. In, I, 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 uh, but uh, you get you get Robert Weiss and and uh, Nelson Gidding and Harris and Bloom and oh, Bloom's still this alive. Is, that was a quicker fact check than the pr- Lightning Thief one, Keith. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Straight uh, away, it's it's a flat fast check. Bloom is still alive, so I'll, I'll I'll stop declaring people dead who are not dead, and people who are lightning thieves when they are not lightning thieves at all. Although I, I, it did occur to me halfway through this last discussion, Shirley Jackson the Lightning Thief that would be a great movie. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Shirley premiered on VOD on June fifth, so it'll be out by the time this episode appears. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, Allison, as our guest, let you go first. What in the film world has been good for you lately? I really like The Vast of Night, uh, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. It's a film I actually got to see at the Overlook Film Festival Remember film festivals? Uh, yeah. The Overlook Film Festival uh, last year, and we gave ended up giving it the prize. But it's just, you know, this... I know you guys have both seen it, but, like, yeah. I just love that it's both this very throwback Twilight zone sci-fi premise, but then just the way it's made is so... It's so gorgeously shot. It just, like, for a micro-budget film, it just does these, like, wildly inventive, daring shots... There's that long take where the camera goes through the whole town that I still can't really wrap my head around mm-hmm. as like. I know part, you know part of it involved a go kart, but then I don't know how they did yes. the rest of it though. No, it's a it's a just completely nuts shot, and then also just like long takes of where like the the screen will go black and it just lets the audio carry to like evoke radio plays. Mm-hmm. Two really great performances. It's also just like one of those films that's set in the past that feels doesn't feel like it has any of the distance of the past. You know, it feels like it's got such blood in its veins mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, of, of like things that all of this kind of could be very nostalgic imagery. It's a really impressive first film uh, from Andrew Patterson. And I was really happy to get to see it again. Yeah. It's one of those movies, one of those sort of calling card debuts where it's like, I'm going to see like, this guy's going to be around for a while. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like this is like this is the start of something. It's like it's like watching like Brick or Heart Eight or something. You know, just something where it's just like, whoa, this is not shy <laughs> about its its own bravado. It's it's it'll give you you know a ten minute single take in, in close up, and then it will give you that amazing. I guess go kart shot or something where you're getting this very fast complex tracking shot of the whole whole town. It plays with silence and sound. Well, I mean the the premise of the thing is about following a audio transmission it's about a, a i guess a dj and a and a switchboard operator the two lead characters uh, it's evocative of 50s science fiction but as you say you know and of course it, it's all done as if it were you know an episode of a twilight zone like show but it's it like definitely, paradox theater but it is so not style wise no like not at all, all. Like, or, or narratively is, either because not not to give anything away but but it doesn't the end is not the sort of like everything snaps into place as we we understand everything that we've just seen kind of twilight zone ending at all it's, right. it's pretty much the opposite right there's no kind of uh punchline slash moral of an ending right. it, it, kind of the opposite yeah yeah i always wonder if it needed the paradox theater frame at all could it just be a, 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 fil- a science fiction film set in the 50s i don't <laughs> know it's neat though. I, I liked it i thought it was a neat touch yeah and i think also you know we've seen 
recent reboots of both the Twilight Zone and Amazing Stories, which I think like this, you know, both of which I think in spirit, this kind of tries to evoke. But I, in some ways, this does a better job of updating that spirit. You know, I think it like including ways in which it delves into race it delves into yeah. uh like how a single parent uh an unmarried single woman is treated all of those things you know i think it folds those into this larger kind of mystery very deftly yeah and and uh to shout out the performance the two lead performances are from uh jake horowitz who basically best i can tell has never been in a movie before i think he's done some stage work and sierra mccormick who was is best known for being on a Disney shows. She was a judge on Who Wants to Be a, a Fifth Grader. She's been around as a child actress for a while. Uh, and they're both terrific and shoulder a lot of the weight of this movie, both in monologues and their, and their long dialogue scenes together. Yeah. So yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, stuff. really. It's good. I think it's going to be a big deal. I think it's, it's such a striking debut. And, and the fact that it's people have easy access to it. Um, <laughs> I think it's, and nothing it's, else to do. Nothing else to do. I mean, yeah. this thing has been a huge buzz magnet. I mean, you don't see a lot of films that start at Slam Dance, kind of making this leap. <laughs> you know, yeah, things, things, charming, charming right. Steven Soderbergh. Uh, apparently, so, I think he was he was yeah. in the jury that year. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's really really well done. Keith, how about you? What have you seen lately that you liked? We lost Fred Willard, the immensely talented uh, comic actor, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So my, my wife and I have been uh, kind of revisiting some old Christopher Guest movies, which which um, we hadn't seen in a while, and they hold up really well. Uh, and and we watched uh, Best in Show and uh, A Mighty Wind recently, and uh, I, I realized like how much we kind of took that style for granted. Uh, until it went away, uh, because because he was, um, you know, a mighty wind was I, I felt like kind of was the, the least well reviewed of those, those three films he did from waiting for waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and and a, and a Mighty Wind, and uh, it's such yeah. a strong piece and and a much more emotional piece of filmmaking. But but I mean, to, to connect it to Fred Willard, it made me appreciate. I mean, he was never not funny, but I also feel like he. In both those films, he's used as sort of a secret weapon to come in later in the film to kind of kick it into another gear. And Best in Show, it's, it's going, it's perfectly happy just trucking along being one of the funniest movies you've ever seen. And then he kind of comes in with his whole, uh, announcer routine, uh, with all these <laughs> ill informed, yeah. classically Fred Willard, uh, thing where, where like confident, smiling, uh, know nothing boobs. I mean, no one, no one did that. No one did that better. Um, yeah. we, like prior to his death, we ended up on a Fred Willard uh, YouTube rabbit hole for a while, and I I was I don't I don't watch uh, Jimmy Kimmel show not because I don't dislike Jimmy Kimmel it seems he's what I've seen is fine, uh, but I he was a after his wife died his his comeback was as a pretty regular contributor to the Jimmy Kimmel show doing that type of character in different forms. Uh, there was one sketch in which he was the the head of uh, I think of the Trump's Fourth of July celebration and just wildly <laughs> enthusiastic about the worst possible things and uh uh just a wonderful a wonderful talent and, and you know obviously you know it's, it's sad to lose and just left behind such a rich body of work so if you don't know those films um you know seek them out uh, and and if you do know them well watch them again they're, they're probably even better than you remember uh scott how about you yeah, so I wanted to uh, take us to the world of uh, virtual cinema, uh, which is uh, which I, we Keith and I had done a Patreon uh, bonus episode for Baccarat, which we both really liked, and uh, and I wanted to recommend a film that you you can watch on virtual cinema called Fourteen. It's on grass via Grasshopper Film. I should do the standard disclaimer that I know the director. His name is Dan Salit. Um, he kind of runs in certain cinephile circles. There are other f- people involved in the film and even in the film that I also know, uh, including our friend Vadim Rizov, who has a role where he sits on a bench and uh, that's pretty much all he does, but it's kind of fun to see him in the movie. But even if I did, you know, even if I didn't know Dan, I would highly recommend this film 14. It's about uh, the relationship between two uh, adult women who have been friends since middle school, but as adults are very, very different people. You know, uh, one is, one is sort of a, is a pretty stable, you know, but not without her own problems, sort of teacher, uh, um, preschool teacher. And then her, her, her friend is, you know, a social worker ostensibly, but is in and out of jobs and also, uh, has troubles with addiction. And, um, and it, and it kind of deals with the fact that they've grown apart in profound ways and, but also have a relationship that is, um, a bond that is st- still has remained all, all of this time. And, uh, and you can see the relationship kind of fur- 
boring here and there, but but also being important to both of them. Uh, what I mean, there's so much. It's such a beautiful film. It's a it's elite style. I've only seen Honeymoon is the only one other one of his I've seen which I quite liked. I mean, it's very um, much more European, I think, than, than American independent than you used to seeing for American, American independent films. Um, and I and there's a a thing he does here with time that just kind of blew my mind. He just cuts like there are time jumps in the film. And you just you don't realize it right away. When you do realize it, it just it it kind of hits you hard. And uh, it's just a, it's such a subtle thing and such a daring thing. It's something that you can do, you know, on a very low budget film to have a strong you know psychological impact on the on the audiences to uh, kind of treat the tools of cinema this way and just like give you the kind of power in a cut that you know no 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 amount of money can buy. So uh, I, I really strongly you know in terms of like you know a low budget independent drama i think um this is a film of tremendous sophistication and, and heart and uh, something that I, I was really kind of dying to talk to someone about after i've seen it it's called 14 and uh you can get it through uh, grasshopper film their virtual cinema sites and virtual cinema is cool because it's it's a thing where you can you pay uh you know you pay more or less what you pay like 12 bucks or so what you pay to a movie theater and then and those proceeds are divided between the, the distributor and the the theater of choice that you want to support. Uh, I, I, I've been throwing my, my virtual cinema dollars to music box, which is my local theater, but there might be a theater that, that it's a virtual theater that's playing and that you might want to support. So that's an opportunity to do that. 14. Pour some soda on the floor, get your feet sticking to exactly. it. Exactly. You know, we've been, we've been replicate. We've been also using music box to, to, uh, they've been having these to go boxes, uh, with, uh, Keith, Keith's done it too. I think you've done this too as well, where, where we can get popcorn and beer and candy. And we've been having movie nights every Friday, uh, which has pretty been a lot of fun. Um, do, is, have any of you seen 14 or am I, uh, now you're, alone? you're alone. No, that, you're the only one. It sound, yeah. it sound really good. It's uh, good. It's good. He's very good. Yeah. Yeah, no. Th- this week's uh, music box thing—you could pay an extra ten dollars and you know, throw in three movie books from from a from a book charity. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, I don't have enough books in my house. I'm definitely gonna, <laughs> gonna do that. <laughs> so. All right. Well, that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out June sixteenth and the twenty third. Scott, what's coming up next? After years of the Studio Ghibli library being largely unavailable to stream in the United States, the launch of HBO Max has been a boon to fans of lyrical, enchanting, and beautifully rendered Japanese animation. Fans like your friends at the Next Picture Show. And so next week, we're going to break format a bit with a special episode about Castle in the Sky, an early film from Ghibli master Hayao Miyazaki, who would go on to direct favorites like My Neighbor Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service, and Spirited Away. Many of Miyazaki's visual and thematic obsessions take flight in the story of two orphans who search for a floating castle with lovable pirates and less lovable government agents in tow. The four of us will also offer our picks for other Studio Ghibli movies you might enjoy. Please join us. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback about our discussion of The Haunting and Shirley and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Vulture, uh, Guardian, uh, The Ringer, and other fine outlets. Allison, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Allison Wilmore. That's a one L and Allison, two L's and Wilmore. And you can find my work on Vulture these days. It's just all living there, just piling up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've been reading your byline and and occasionally back in the day editing your pieces, and I can still never remember where the, where the L's are. <laughs> your name, Allison. They just they both go in the places you just don't think they're supposed to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, our absent co-host uh, Tasha Robinson, uh, you can find her at 
uh, on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson. She's the film and TV editor of Polygon. Our other absent co-host, Genevieve Kosky, you can find her on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. She is the deputy TV editor of Vulture. Uh, my name is Keith Phipps. You can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. I'm a freelance writer. I write for, um, well, occasionally write for Vulture. I write for The Ringer. I write for Mel. I write for, um, you know, uh, Fangoria, which is fun. Um, you know, I'm, all, I'm over the place. And you, you need something written? You know where to find me. All right. You can <laughs> At see updated Phipps, on the- 3000 is where we'd find you. That's true. Uh, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake, Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Yeah.